Hello, and welcome to Pin Drop World News, the show where each week we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm AJ Camacho, and my co-producer, Diego Austin, will be guiding us through today's show as we explore the news around the West Bank, specifically the rise in violence in the West Bank, a potential crisis of leadership, and the rightward shift of Israeli politics. We'll be hearing from former Israeli intelligence official Avi Malamed and the Deputy Permanent Observer of the State of Palestine to the United Nations, Ambassador Feda Abdelhadi Nasser. As always, we'll conclude with a panel of the Pindrop producers to discuss the news and what our guests had to say. Diego, take it away. Hello, everyone, and thank you again for listening to Pindrop. Now we will dive into our major issues section, and of course, we will be diving into the West Bank, which has seen several important developments since 2022. We will be looking further into the rise in violence in the West Bank, the rise of a new militia called the Lion's Den, a potential crisis in Palestinian leadership, and the implications of Israel's continuing rightward shifts. Now, the West Bank has been occupied by Israel since the Six-Day War in 1967, and in the, well, in the 1990s, the Oslo peace process led to limited parts of the West Bank being transferred to the Palestinian Authority, or the PA, which was largely run by Fatah, the largest faction in the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. Yet the peace process did not lead to the promising future many envisioned in the early 90s. The Israeli prime minister who largely backed it, Yitzhak Rabin, was assassinated by a Jewish right-wing extremist, while settlement expansion continued. At the same time, Israel and the PA were unable to make significant progress on final status issues, like the future status of Jerusalem, the right to return for Palestinian refugees who lost their homes in 1948, and the borders of a future Palestinian state. Meanwhile, the leader of the PLO, Yasser Arafat, was unable and some say unwilling to control the more radical groups, especially Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Palestine, which were opposed to the peace process and routinely conducted deadly attacks against Israeli civilians. In the early 2000s, the Second Intifada saw Palestinian militant groups launch a campaign of violence that left many Israelis dead, while Israeli military responses, and in particular Operation Offensive Shield in 2002, wreaked havoc on many West Bank cities and left many Palestinians dead, including, well, especially in Jenin and Nablus. In 2007, Hamas took over the Gaza Strip, and they and Israel have clashed many times since then. And while there has been constant lower-level violence in the West Bank between then and 2022, violence again escalated in 2022. And 2022 and 2023 have been some of the deadliest years ever for Palestinians, and there has been a significant rise in Israeli civilian casualties too. This rise in violence comes after the generation of Palestinians that grew up in the immediate aftermath of Operation Defensive Shield now reach adulthood, and at the same time, Israel shifts further right and settler violence increases along with that. That was a brief background to better understand our episode. And of course, the story of the West Bank and of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in general goes back decades and I could go into detail for hours. But instead, I will begin our focus more recently on August 9th, 2022. This date marked the death of Palestinian militant Ibrahim al-Nabulsi in a shootout with the IDF in the old city of Nablus which has again become one of the hotspots of the conflict. At first sight, the story of al-Nabulsi may not stand out. 2022 is one of the deadliest years ever for Palestinians, and al-Nabulsi was one among the 191 Palestinians 
killed by Israeli army forces or, in rare cases, settlers, according to UN data, with at least 40 children among them. Amid an, intensif an intensifying wave of violence, this trend has only escalated, and over 200 Palestinians have been killed so far in 2023, making it the deadliest year ever for Palestinians in the West Bank. This comes amid a wider background of escalated assaults by the Israeli army on the West Bank, but especially in Nablus and Jenin. Nablus and Jenin have largely slipped out of the control of the PA and are major hubs for Palestinian militant groups. The heavy presence of such groups in these cities have caused them to become targets of Israeli military operations. Last February, an Israeli raid in Nablus left 11 Palestinians dead. Some of the dead included militants, but also civilians, including two old men and one child. Meanwhile, in early July, the IDF conducted a large raid on Jenin refugee camp that left at least 13 Palestinians dead. Something unique about this operation was its severity, as the IDF deployed an Apache helicopter in the, in the West Bank for the first time since the Second Intifada. These clashes are among the several clashes and raids that have increasingly occurred in the West Bank since 2022, again especially in Nablus and Jenin. Yet, while al-Nabulsi at first glance is only one among the hundreds of killed Palestinians in these raids targeting militants, his death was extremely significant. Al-Nabulsi was already quite popular in the Palestinian street before his death, having amassed a significant following on TikTok and being a sort of local hero in Nablus. He was indeed known as the Lion of Nablus, and his death made him quite a prominent martyr and led to the naming of a new Palestinian group, the Lion's Den, after him. Now in Nablus and much of the West Bank, Al-Nabulsi is still seen as a sort of folk hero, Posters of him often armed lined the streets of Nablus and icons with his face and those of other prominent militants are sold in street kiosks. Now, part of what makes al-Nabulsi so important is that he played a large role in founding a new type of Palestinian, Palestinian militant group that follows a new formula, the Lion's Den. Throughout the century, the Palestinian struggle has been dominated by two groups. On one side, there is Fatah, the most dominated, dominant faction, the PA, and the main Palestinian force in favor of the Oslo peace process. Fatah, led by PA President Mahmoud Abbas, favors a two-state solution and a diplomatic path forward. On the other side, there is Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Unlike Fatah, these factions are jihadist, which adds more of a religious dimension, of course, and they do not favor a two-state solution and instead favor armed struggle over negotiation. Predictively, Palestinian factions have not quite gotten along, in 2007, Hamas took over the Gaza Strip in what was essentially a bloody military coup, while in recent years, Fatah has splintered into now three factions. Within this factional rivalry, the Lion's Den has offered a third way. The Lion's Den removes itself from politics and instead aims to unite Palestinians of different ideologies under one banner. It serves as more of a pan-Palestinian liberation movement with no ties to any one ideology. This seems to point to changing attitudes among its main demographic, young Palestinian men who are disillusioned with the current political situation, including the traditional factions. And like Al-Nabulsi, the Lion's Den has become quite popular in the Palestinian street, especially around Nablus. The group has over 200,000 followers on Telegram and also had a massive following on TikTok before being banned. In October of 2022, the Lion's Den called for a day of rage in response to an Israeli raid on Shu'afat refugee camp near Jerusalem and thousands of Palestinians in several cities across the West Bank participated in a general strike as a result. The popularity of al-Nabulsi in the Lion's Den is part of a broader sense of disillusionment in Palestinian society, especially among the young generation. 
While the 1990s ushered in a brief era of hope through the Oslo process, this only culminated in continued settlement expansion, the Second Intifada, the construction of the Separation Wall, and several wars between Hamas and Israel over Gaza. The new generation of Palestinians, those who now fill the ranks of the Lion's Den and other militant groups, largely grew up in the aftermath of the failed peace process. For the cities of Nablus and Jenin, this was especially traumatic as Israel responded to the Second Intifada with Operation Defensive Shield in 2002. The Battle of Jenin and the Battle of Nablus left over 100 Palestinians dead within a few days and caused a widespread destruction in these cities. And the population of these cities still bears the psychological scars of those days. And young Palestinian men who grew up in the aftermath of the tragic situation have not seen a brighter future. Since then, settlement expansion has continued, and as the far right in Israel has grown, this has been accompanied by rising settler violence. The, these extremist branches of the settler movement have been largely encouraged by far-right and high-ranking Israeli politicians like Finance Minister Bezazel Smotrich and National Security Minister Edmar Ben-Gavir. Indeed, the past elections has caused Netanyahu to form the most right-wing coalition in Israeli history, with far-right parties, religious Zionism, and Asma Yehuda joining his coalition. Recently, Netanyahu's controversial judicial overhaul revoked the reasonableness clause, which would take away much of the Supreme Court's ability to counter legislation passed by the Knesset. Meanwhile, the PA has been run by an aging and increasingly unpopular leadership, who many also view as corrupt. President Abbas is 87 years old and has not held elections in nearly 20 years. It is not uncommon for the PA to clash with militant groups, especially in Jenin and Nablus, as part of attempts to make arrests. Many Palestinians feel the negotiation efforts of the PA have not yielded any fruit, and while the PA has a stronghold in city, cities like Ramallah and Jericho, they lack control over more contested areas like Nablus and Jenin. The socioeconomic situation is also quite bad for many Palestinians. Many young people have trouble finding satisfactory work, even though many hold college degrees, and the population largely, largely lacks access to drinking water, while freedom of movement has been extremely limited since the construction of the separation wall in the early 2000s. These factors combine to form a bleak picture. Both Palestinians and Israelis largely have a pessimistic outlook on the fallout of the Oslo process and for the most part feel that the other side was not serious about pursuing peace. Amid this background, Israeli politics have shifted further right, and far-right politicians who would have been almost unelectable one or two decades ago now hold important cabinet positions. Fatah, the main branch interested in a diplomatic solution for Palestinians, has continued to see decreasing legitimacy and is almost bound to face a leadership crisis soon due to an aging and unpopular Mahmoud Abbas. Meanwhile, several young Palestinian men who grew up in these bleak circumstances feel that there is no alternative to armed struggle and the new generation is forming new types of militant organizations that have gained significant popularity. We will explore these issues and more with two interviewees. Since this episode is, of course, on a very contested conflict, we felt it was essential to include guests offering two perspectives. Our first guest is Avi Melamed. Mr. Melamed is a former high-ranking Israeli intelligence official who also served as senior advisor on Arab affairs for Jerusalem mayors Ehud Olmert and Teddy Kolek during the first and second intifadas. Our second guest is Ambassador Feda Abdelhadi Nasser, Ambassador Abdelhadi Nasser is the Deputy Permanent Observer of the State of Palestine to the United Nations. We will now move into our first interview with Mr. Melamed. Mr. Melamed, thank you for coming on Pindrop. We are honored to have you on the podcast. So the first question I have for you is that 
since 2021, we have seen a trend of an increasing uptick in violence in the West Bank. And this has been attributed to several factors, including a weakened Palestinian Authority, Iran and Hezbollah boosting their assistance to Islamist groups, uh, disillusionments with the aftermath of the Oslo process among Palestinians, and the growth of the far right in Israel more recently. So what factors do you think are the biggest contributors to the surge in violence? I mean, you listed accurately the major factors that are involved in this uh, part you accurately described. Um, I don't know if I can say, you know, decisively which of the one is the most uh, influential, uh, which one of the factors that you mentioned, but my tendency would be to um, mostly uh, um, associated with some kind of like a, a, an overarching uh, factor that is to a large extent kind of like brings together all the factors that you mentioned before. And this is an inner uh, continuing and growing debate or I would say confusion within Palestinians regarding their path ahead. And let me explain. Roughly speaking today, um, there are two major I would say ideologies or political outlooks that dominate the, the, the Palestinian public realm, public discussion. One is the one that is um, offered by Hamas or Islamic Jihad, and it's known as the Armed Resistance Mukawama and Masalaha. And and according to that ideology, you know, there should be no compromise with Israel, no concession, and the only way to continue is just to continue the violence, hopefully until Israel will be destroyed. Um, the other ideology, which is to a large extent uh, represented by Fatah and Palestinian Authority, actually says we are not standing for the armed resistance, we are standing for a non-violent resistance. Um, and each of the camps can actually counter or brings arguments to support its position. Hamas and Islamic Jihad says to the Palestinian Authority in Fatah, you took the path of diplomatic concessions, you took the path of compromises, and you, you went up with no results. In fact, they say you went up in a worse situation. The Palestinian Authority in Fatah says to Hamas and Islamic Jihad, look, you uh, basically let Gaza Strip from one disaster to another. And by the way, this is the outlook that is predominantly, I would say, also common in the Arab world. So this overarching uh, debate within the Palestinians themselves is actually the one that you can find within that all the factors that you have mentioned before. And right. so that that's something that I would say is the umbrella within which we can look at all the factors that you mentioned before. And within this sort of competition among Palestinian factions for control, we've seen an, a very strange new development, which is the emergence of these two new militias, the Lion's Den and Janine Brigades, which claim to operate separately from other factions. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of wondering what has caused one. Do you think the Lion's Den and Janine Brigades are truly independent from other factions as they claim? And two, what do you think has caused the emergence of these sort of new groups that try to claim to at least to remove themselves from the traditional political disputes? 
Well, Diego, we need to make some uh, distinguish here. Uh, first, let me refer first to the issue of the lion that appeared in the city of Nablus, a major Palestinian city. And that that group is exactly an example of what I was talking just before when I was talking about this inner debate within the Palestinian. In a way, the lion that which is disassociates itself with any of the Palestinian major groups. The reason for that is basically that this is the third way, so speaking in the context of the inner Palestinian debate, meaning the lion then saying, oh, we are neither standing on the wall of Hamas, nor we stand in the camp of the Palestinian Authority in Fatah, we are something else. And it's kind of like an attempt to basically create some sort of like uh, some new synergy, uh, which is more domestically affiliated. Um, so, for itself, the story of the lion, then, though, though it does not have a military significance, uh, it's it's interesting because it basically dialogues directly with what I was describing before, and this is the inner debate within the Palestinians themselves and the ramifications and repercussions of that. As for Janine, look, in Janine, uh, the major uh, military militia that operates in Janine, uh, Janine Brigades, is actually affiliated with the Slavic Jihad in Pakistan. Uh, there are other elements that are joining, slash participating, slash cooperating, but, but the major span, or I would say the major body that was recently in, involved in, in, in producing this uh, instability and constant violence uh, from Jenin uh, is the one that is associated with Islamic Jihad, uh, Islamic Jihad in Palestine. The more I look at Palestinian uh, politics, the more I feel like the Palestinian Authority is sort of a ticking time bomb because Abbas is old and seems to be quite unpopular, and he hasn't held elections in around 20 years, and there's fears that were fair elections held, they may be won by maybe someone worse like Hamas. Now, once Abbas dies, it's hard for me to see an alternative to a huge Palestinian power struggle among rival Fatah factions, uh, with Hamas and Islamic Jihad coming in the picture, and perhaps the new militias uh, that have emerged. So what do you think a post-Abbas power struggle would look like? Do you think it would be similar to what happened in Gaza? Or or do you think it would be different? And and what role do you think Israel would play? Well, first I would say that definitely there is a serious concern that we may witness a very bloody power struggle. It's definitely an option that all sides are aware of. Uh, you know, in my recent, just recent talks with some Palestinians on the West Bank, uh, they do express this concern and uh, this is a very... It's not a baseless concern, it's a very serious concern. However, it may be that we witness some sort of like an inner agreement, sort of speaking, between major figures within Fatah that will actually will form some sort of like joint power sharing, so to speaking. In other words, I do not see one specific person that comes to power and that person really has the ability to hold authorities in his hand. I rather see some kind of like, a, you know, scattered power centers that are basically finding some sort of formula to cooperate or to join forces, at least for the time being. And maybe in the future, one of those factors will be able to strengthen its position enough to basically expand its, its power. So. I look more of a model of like power sharing within Fatah um, in, in the post-Abbas uh, times. Now, 
the other element that you mentioned, obviously Hamas and Islamic Jihad. I think that Israel, referring to Hamas uh, and Islamic Jihad, if there will be a clear process when uh, Israel will come to the conclusion that Hamas and Islamic Jihad are trying to duplicate the Gaza model, meaning what the Hamas did in 2007 when he, um, you know, violently terminated the regime, the control of the Palestinian Authority in Gaza Strip and took over Gaza Strip. If there will be such a scenario evolving in the West Bank, I would um, I would uh, anticipate that Israeli government will order the Israeli Defense Forces to step in to move in and to block that development. But I. I don't think that this is something that will... And now, within this power struggle, I I don't just look in all these dynamics. I don't just look in at what's happening within the West Bank. I, I also try to take a wider regional view. And I look specifically to Iran and um, Hezbollah um, because, I, I mean, Iran has been supplying Islamist groups like Hamas Islamic Jihad for years. And Recently, the head of the IRGC praised the unseen hand supplying terrorist organizations with weapons. So, um, would you say what what role do you think Iran would play in this power struggle? And also, how do you think Israel can combat the smuggling of weapons into the West Bank, which seems to have escalated? To make a long story short, the Iranian have interest to further fuel the flames of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Why? Because the Iranians play the card of pretending to be the defenders of the Palestinians because they know that that card enabled them to mislead, deceive uh, the masses in the Arab world. Under that slogan of we are going to liberate Palestine and we will defend Laksa and so on, the Iranian regime was basically able to form this network of its proxies, armed proxies like Hezbollah and Iraqi Shiite militias, or agents like Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and massively armed them, as you mentioned, and financed them. And that's that's all part of the Iranian master plan of becoming the hegemonic power in the Middle East, uh, you know, under the frame of what is known as the axis of resistance. So, as far as the Mullah regime is concerned. Uh, further fueling the, the flames of the conflict is a great interest of the Mullah regime, and they are doing everything they can in order to continue that. One of the elements, for example, is, as you mentioned, you know, uh, they massively support Hamas and Islamic Jihad. They, uh, they are involved in smuggling weapons to the West Bank, uh, financing uh, the building of terror establishments and, and infrastructure in the West Bank. So the Iranians, from their perspective, obviously, the more the more the flame rise and high, the, the better. Um, now, the issue of the smuggling of the weapon to uh, to the weapons to the West Bank has to deal with other uh, aspects, and this is the uh, one of the one of the repercussion of the Iranian presence in Syria and the presence of Iranian-backed militias in Syria uh, in the area that borders Jordan. Uh, one of the outcome of that was uh, the whole issue of uh, smug smuggling of weapons from Syria through Jordan to uh, uh, to the West Bank, as you probably know. Israel's longest border is with Jordan, and it's also the border that actually physically uh, includes the West Bank. So uh, it's relatively an easy task if you try to um, smuggle in weapons. Right. And 
along with as there's been this sort of rise in the um, power of religious Zionist elements within the the government, we have also seen the increase of settler violence in the West Bank, especially in the village of Huara near Nablus, which adds another uh, complex dynamic into this whole changing situation in the West Bank. So to what extent do you think this increasing settler violence is a product of Israel's right-wing shifts in the governments? Do you think these things are closely related or do you think they're happening semi-independently of each other? Well, I would say something like that. Within the settler movement, I would start by saying something very simple. Overwhelming majority of the settlers are not approving, they are not supporting, they are not identifying with this um, anarchist, uh, I would call them terrorist, hardcore of settlers in the West Bank who are involved in those atrocities. Majority of the settlers in the West Bank definitely do not approve that, they definitely resign that and, 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 and resent that. So that's, that has to be said. Um, that being said, of course, once you see that in the government, the Minister of Israel's Homeland Security is a person who is coming from the very, very center of those, this hardcore fanatic, anarchist, terrorist, a small group of settlers, obviously they gain momentum, they gain, they are encouraged by them. It's very clear. When, when, when Israel's Minister of Treasure, uh, Mr. Smotrich, who is, can be defined as an ideological extremist, ideological fanatic, uh, when he basically openly calls to, to the state, quote unquote, to uh, eliminate Palestinian village, obviously, you can understand that those fanatics and radicals and extremists among the settlers, who again I emphasize are minority of minority, obviously they gain momentum. They are being encouraged and power. So there is clearly a, a connection, a connection between. Uh, between the two. I wanted to finish off by drawing on your own experience as an advisor of Arab affairs to two Jerusalem mayors during two intifadas, and my own personal experience because. I've been to Nablus myself a few times, and I've talked to people there. And unfortunately, it's it's very evident that the lion's den has quite a lot of supports among the population. And something I've noticed is that there's a sense of hopelessness among this demographic of young Palestinian men. Um, a lot of them feel they lack economic opportunity or the freedom to choose their destiny. And they feel that violence is a constant reality for them. And it seems many people I've heard who try to justify the lines then, it seems like they do it as a result of feeling that they have a lack of alternatives. Um, they don't feel like the Palestinian Authority or Israel is representing their interests. And of course, I don't support this and I don't think that it's an, a good or effective alternative for Palestinians. But I think it's evident that a lot of work must be done to draw young Palestinian men away from feeling that they have no alternative but to support or seek the violence and you yourself, of course, worked as the senior official for Arab affairs during the first and second intifada in Jerusalem. And I'm sure you maybe dealt with a similar situation. So what do you think can be done by Israel and the Palestinian Authority 
to reach this demographic of young Palestinian men whose difficulties have caused them to sometimes support these militant groups? And what, what can be changed to draw more people away from seeking this alternative? Well, Diego, first, I would say that I totally agree with your impression. I mean, what you reflect, I think, is accurate reflection. You know, indeed, there is a lot of sense of uh, despair, lack of hope among many Palestinians, young Palestinians, uh, both in Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. Um, that that um, those feelings basically reflect uh, the um, the frustration, disappointment, and frustration of young Palestinians with both uh, uh, Hamas uh, in the case of Gaza Strip and Fatah and Palestinian Authority in the West. Um, this is this is one element of of the picture, and in, in, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation when I was talking about the. The, you know, the arching wide umbrella, the story of this inner Palestinian debate regarding what path should they take. You know, in that sense, by the way, there is an interesting phenomenon when it comes to the Palestinians. Every single time there has been um, a military clash uh, between Israel and Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the, the same phenomenon repeats itself. The first hours or the first day, you know, Hamas and Islamic Jihad gained a lot of uh, momentum and gained a lot of support and affiliation and, and you know, identification in the Palestinian street, both in Gaza Strip and in the West Bank. And, and then when this, the, the dust settles down and the scale of destruction are exposed, and particularly the fact that uh, those military runs leads Palestinians just to a more deadened street, what we see then is that there is some sort of like, okay, uh, the Palestinians basically said, okay, what did we really get out of those, out of the path of Hamas and Islamic Jihad? We didn't get anything. We just got the situation more, more worse. Um, so in that sense, that could in a way explain uh, some of the attractiveness uh, of the line. There. We have to remember also that the, the, the narrative of the armed resistance uh, carrying weapons uh, is a very strong narrative for the Palestinians because the Palestinians views themselves always as the you know the underdog, the the the, 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 the deprived of the victim and so on and so on. So for them, uh, emotionally and, and, and psychologically, you know this issue of like we are carrying our own weapon, we have the ability to act proactively or to defend ourselves. Or to this is this is something that is very powerful for them. So it's so that explains also some of the attractiveness of the line then and and, and other militant Islamists, the, the Palestinians. But this is part of the picture. Look, uh, you asked about uh, what should be the role of uh, Palestinian Authority, what should be the role of Israel. We have to remember one major thing. I mean, the international community, the United States, the EU has poured billions and billions and billions in the Palestinian Authority uh, to basically address exactly those very acute needs of the people, jobs and employment and education and healthcare and services and so on and so on. There is a very strong sentiment within Palestinians in the West Bank that the Palestinian Authority is badly corrupted, that um, the Palestinian Authority is not tuned and not you know, channeling or funneling the huge funds to the service of the people. And that, of course, fuels the growing resentments and anger within the Palestinians. 
So I would say definitely that from a Palestinian perspective, one of the major issues is that the Palestinian Authority will make sure that the, the people, the Palestinians, will see that the huge funds that are poured into the Palestinian Authority are used to serve the people's needs. I mean, if there was a feeling of the Palestinians that the Palestinian Authority is not corrupted, if there was a feeling that the Palestinian Authority is truly trying to offer horizon to the young generation in the Palestinian cities and, and villages and so on, maybe those sentiments of frustration and anger would not be existing or would be much less present, so to speak. As for Israel, uh, look, um, definitely uh, Israel has a responsibility to support the Palestinians and Palestinian Authority to, to try to create better horizon. Uh, there are very un irresponsible, irresponsible voices in Israeli politics who wishes for the Palestinian Authority to crumble. Uh, this is in my mind and in the mind of major security, political, diplomatic, and, and intelligence uh, agencies in Israel. This, this, these calls are totally madness. It's not Israel's strategic interest to see the collapse of the Palestinian Authority. Israel does has to do uh, what what it can do and much more in order to support because it's an Israeli interest. So any kind of action that Israel could take in the form of like alleviating um, you know bureaucratical um, obstacles, supporting the Palestinian Authority. Um, generating and initiating um, 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 activities, plans, moves that could expand the horizon for Palestinians in the West Bank, for economic activity, for employment and other things. These are things that Israel has an enormous responsibility to to battle with Palestinians. And um, Unfortunately, I think that what we see today is that the stage is taken on both sides by people, by politicians, by policymakers, whose their um, priorities and agenda are not necessarily colliding with that, with those objectives that were just, uh, just described. That was Avi Melamed. Mr. Melamed is a former high-ranking Israeli intelligence official who served as a senior advisor in Arab affairs to two Jerusalem mayors during the first and second intifadas. Mr. Melamed, thank you for coming on Pindrop. It's been an honor having you on. Now I'm excited to introduce our second guest, which is Ambassador Feda Abdelhadi Nasser. Ambassador Abdelhadi Nasser is the Deputy Permanent Observer of the State of Palestine to the United Nations. Ambassador, thank you for coming on Pindrop. I'm excited to speak with you. All right, so um, I suppose first I just want to jump in and start with uh, one of the major developments we've seen in the West Bank is that there's been a huge rise in violence uh, 2022 and 2023 have been some of the deadliest years for Palestinians in the West Bank. And this year has seen another escalation with major raids in Jenin, which saw the deployment of an Apache helicopter for the first time since Defensive Shield, I think, and major raids on Nablus. 
now several factors have been attributed to the rise in violence, um, including the rise of the right wing in Israel, uh, growing settler violence, um, as well as a loss of legitimacy of Fatah and other factions perhaps gaining more legitimacy that are less connected to the peace process. Um, what And our interviewer said that a lot of the violence is connected to an inter-Palestinian debate between sort of Fatah-aligned factions and Hamas and Islamic Jihad-aligned factions on the path forward. Um, so what, what do you think are the main uh, causes of this huge rise in violence uh, since 2022? Well, uh, first, thank you, Diego, for having me uh, on the program. And uh, thank you for the interest in having this discussion. The rise in violence and in civilian casualties in the West Bank in 2022 and 2023 is something that is of, of great concern to us, and particularly the rise in the number of deaths of children killed by Israeli uh, occupying forces, by the military, and or by settler militias. And, and there have been more than 40 Palestinian children killed um, in 2023 alone. Um, as you said, the rise in violence can be attributed to many different factors, um, including uh, the rise of a, of a right-wing government in Israel that has um, effectively sealed off any prospects for a political solution, but it also can be attributed to a loss of hope um, by the younger generation uh, of Palestinians in the West Bank in that political process. And I believe it's less factional um, and more about that there are parties that are less vested in the peace process, um, groups and individuals that are less vested in the peace process that they have seen as not delivering on its promise of, uh, of freedom and independence and fulfillment of rights for the Palestinian people, of the um, independence of the state of Palestine, of the, pro of, of the prospect of peace and security. And so there, the, the peace process, uh, the Oslo process, if we may uh, term it that, it's lost credibility. Um, and so at the same time, the, uh, the Palestinian officials or leaderships that are most vested in the peace process and most uh, uh, wedded to the peace process, the, the, the credibility factor is also affecting them um, because, because, they because it hasn't delivered. And it seemed to me in Nablus especially that one of the results of this sort of questioning of credibility was the rise of this new militia, the Lions Den. And that, that's something I kind of want to explore a bit more because it's a very unique phenomenon to me because they seem disconnected from the traditional disputes among Palestinian factions and seem to try to offer a third way where they try to, along with the Janine Brigade to a lesser extent, unite Palestinians of different ideologies, secular Palestinians, more Islamist Palestinians, under one sort of pan-Palestinian banner. Um, I... So I'm kind of wondering, what do you what do you think caused the formation of the Lions Den, and what has caused them to be so popular? Because they do seem to be quite popular, and they they amass very large followings on TikTok and uh, 
Telegram as well? Uh, so, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you, we've discussed a lot of the, uh, the elements that have led to the, uh, the emergence of the lion's den. Um, and the social media that they are using obviously helps them to um, have a, a broader exposure to their their views, their vision, their calls for liberation. And I think that that is actually the essence of what they are doing, rather than, as you say, they are not following the traditional path of factional um, engagement. And they're offering a third way. They're off there because their focus is on liberation. Their focus is on ending occupation. And I think that with the advent of the peace process, that there has been, I don't want to say a dilution of the focus on liberation, but there began to be um, two different um, thrusts to the Palestinian leadership. One is the the Palestinian National Authority that was established, and that is meant to provide services to the, you know, to the population through education, healthcare, uh, security, law and order, and otherwise. But then you have what should, you know, the essence of what the PLO is, which is a liberation movement. And I think that in a sense, the young people in the lion's den are restoring that. that objective as the primary objective, that liberation is the primary objective of a people that is, that, is, that is being deprived of their freedom and deprived of their rights. And so they are, in, in that sense, mirroring what was the unitedness of Palestinian factions in the past. And I, I do want to go more into the sort of growth of the far right in Israel in a second. But before, I sort of wanted to wrap up this sort of section on the lines then by asking specifically about Ibrahim al-Nabulsi, because when I look at these sort of changing dynamics since around 2022, he's, to me, one of the most important names because um, when I go around Nablus and Jenin and speak to people, this guy is regarded as almost like a a folk hero. And in, in Nablus... Um, his posters lined the streets, and um, his death led to the sort of naming of the lion's den after him. He was known as the Lion's Nine of Nablus. The lion's den seemed to be a continuation of a group that he and some other uh, militants founded a few months earlier. Um, and when he died, his mother said that they did not kill Ibrahim because everyone is Ibrahim. So I'm I'm kind of wondering what. What set this guy, Ibrahim al-Nabulsi, apart to make him such a sort of, um, such a symbolic uh, person among the many Palestinians who have died in that time period? Was there something like special about him or something? I think that he, he, that Ibrahim uh, maybe personified a generational shift mm-hmm. and a generational shift in the sense of what his, uh, his, his father and others of his father's generation um, believed in, engaged in, in terms of the Palestinian security services and the role that they were, um, that they were tasked to play and in a sense, in some sense, co-opted to play through the Oslo process. 
Um, and so he represented a, a juxtaposition, a generational shift that we've seen what works and we've seen what doesn't work. We've seen what didn't work. And I'm choosing to strike out and on my own path in a different way. Um, and so why he's become like folklore, I think a lot of it, 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 it's similar to other issues where you see how someone suddenly becomes a legend because the moment requires that. There was a need, there's a, there's a thirst, there's a hunger among the younger generation for a hero. And um, he um, perhaps is seen as uh, having taken on that role in his short life and, and thereafter in death because of his, um, uh, you know, very, you know, the insistence on not uh, succumbing to the uh the the oppression and 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 to pushing back against it to resisting it in a, in a manner that was seen as not cowardly and rather uh heroic and that you know this this is a model for others to say nope we're we're going to be very firm in 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 insisting not not apologetic or shameful about resisting and i think that is you know the 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 generational tension that there is because there is a commitment to nonviolence by the PLO leadership and myself as a diplomat we are committed to to pursuing a peaceful diplomatic legal political path forward towards the um attainment of the rights that the Palestinian people have been deprived of but others are seeing it differently and saying, you know, you can keep doing that in the diplomatic and the legal realms, but on the ground here, we're going to to engage differently in how we stand up for our rights. And I think that was part of, again, the legend of his his very short life and how it's been framed thereafter, including the quote uh, that you shared by his mother. Maybe that's right. the stuff of, that's how legends are made, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. And, and, you know, I think part of this disillusionment, as we spoke about, is the growth of the far right in Israel. I mean, there have been this year, I think, what, like two or three times where the settlers went into Huwara and they they committed widespread arson attacks. And there's been a growth of settler violence. This is a major concern among a lot of Palestinians I spoke with. And recently, the reasonableness clause um, was taken away um, as part of the judicial overhaul. Um, so... How, how do you think things are looking forward with this? I mean, because I, I see a very bleak picture where um, that in Yahoo's coalition may essentially have carte blanche to pursue whatever policies they wish in the West Bank now without the, the veto of the Supreme Court. So I think that this extreme right government in Israel is manifesting the worst instincts and the worst behaviors of Israel that have been underlying its behavior as an occupying power for over 56 years, um, an occupying power that has enabled the settler uh, population to grow and to grow and to grow through every um, iteration of the Israeli government um, that has used the 
uh, the institutions of the government, including the Supreme Court, to uh, enable the entrenchment of this occupation, the colonization of the land, the annexation of East Jerusalem and other parts of the occupied Palestinian territory. And so all of that was underlying, but what has happened is now that um, the extremists within the Israeli polity have come to the fore. And so now there is, it is completely exposed. It's no holds barred. They are going all the way with everything they've been doing gradually. And so now it seems uh, very vulgar and it seems very extreme and it seems, uh, you know, very um, heavy handed. But the fact is that this has been happening all along. Only now these settler extremists have risen to the levers of power. And so they are not just um, being aided and abetted by the government. They are part of the government and they are going to implement their agenda hard and fast. And that is why we are seeing the rise in settler violence and, and in, you know, the emboldenment of, of these settler gangs and militias like the Hilltop Youth and others, um, because they basically have their back. And that's why we've seen Hawada and and other um such you know attacks on civilians on palestinian villages and towns um the supreme court and the you know the judicial overhaul or whatever they want to term it um yes the supreme court in a sense was playing a role as a stopgap measure um and now the you know the 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 removal of the reasonableness clause creates a a wider path let's say an easier path for the government to do anything that it wants to do to pursue its worst instincts actually but the view of palestinians is that in any way this entire system is corrupt and again that the court has been part of the enablement uh, of this occupation. And in any case, these extremists are pursuing not only what they've been pursuing for the past 56 years of the occupation, but for the, the duration of time since the Nakba, since, 19, since, since 1948, so for over 75 years, this insistence of Israeli domination um, and control of the land and the people that happened to be in that land, the Palestinian people. Um, and under Netanyahu, that was manifested also long before the judicial overhaul with the 2018 nation-state law that clearly said that the right to self-determination in this land is only for the Jewish people. Uh, but now it's being physically manifested. It's not just a piece of legislation. It is being physically manifested, and it always has been in terms of the settlements and, and other behaviors whereby Israel has um, colonized and oppressed with a view to not ever leaving. And then, as opposed to, to wrap it up, um, what, what do you think is the way forward in this situation? Because after returning from my, my study abroad, I was, I was honestly left a bit depressed with the situation. Because around the West Bank, uh, by and large, people are living uh, without dignity, really. 
Um, I mean, they, they suffer constant violence. I met a lot of people, so many people who have college degrees and in pretty important, like, like biology and stuff, and they, they can't really find a job. Um, and it, it seems like in within the West Bank, um, there, there might be a, a crisis in leadership too once a boss dies. And it seems like many young Palestinians, as we mentioned, are, are disillusioned with the current state of affairs, whereas on the Israeli side, uh, the government is moving further to the right. Um, and it, it seems people on both sides, it seems Israelis and Palestinians both feel like the other side isn't taking peace seriously. And it, it's just not a situation that's very conducive to a peace process. And I'm, and I'm kind of wondering what you think the way, way forward is here. So I, I, I have my worries as well, too, when uh, I see the indignities that the Palestinian people are being subjected to and the, the, the constant violence and, and the brutality of the repression that they are being exposed to and that they are enduring on a daily basis and considering what this does to um, the psyche, the behavior, the world outlook of a people that is subjected to that. Um, And the difficulty, yes, of not being able to have being a college graduate and not having a job and not having livelihoods. Um, and I think all of that feeds into um, the current dynamics that we're witnessing um, in the West Bank. Um, but I also see a resilience and an insistence to live despite all of that despite the violence and despite the repression and despite all of the uh, brutal manifestations of the occupation, I think that you may have also seen that life is, is, it goes on and that the youth and, and the older generations are living. And it could be as simple as they're going to the marketplace or they're having weddings or they're celebrating graduations or celebrating uh, the high school exams, you know, achievements. Um, and so there is a resilience that is quite remarkable that continues to, to carry us day by day. And the difficulties that we are facing, including a potential crisis in leadership, has to be looked at as a transitional period. It is, and, and, it, and transitional periods are never easy, and they can be quite difficult. Um, and so we may not be so optimistic at the moment, but that we have to believe that as in, you know, the course of history is going to, to, to run itself. And we will see how we come out on the other side. And I think that one of the the most important things is the maintenance of hope in these very critical um, periods and in these transitional periods, the maintenance of hope in and particularly among the younger generation, and hope can can take uh, many different um, you know uh, character characteristics in the sense of providing hope. Yes, jobs provide hope. A livelihood provides hope because the absence of a livelihood and the deepening of poverty will make people more hopeless and more uh, rejectionist and, and maybe more extreme also in their views. Um, providing a, a, a political horizon that this, this um, 
suffering will soon end. That is the importance of having a political horizon and a credible peace process that is going to bring an end to the occupation and bring liberation to the Palestinian people. And unfortunately, neither is in the offing at the moment. Um, but for my part, I'd like to end by saying that, you know, part of what we do as diplomats is to try to create those pathways for hope and for the future and an insistence that the liberation of the Palestinian people has to happen because international law and human rights dictate so. We would wish that it would happen sooner rather than later, but we do not give up just because the situation is so dire at the moment on pursuing that pathway. And that is why we are engaged not only in the General Assembly at the UN and the Security Council, but at the International Court of Justice, where right now we have a very big uh, case before the International Court of Justice seeking an advisory opinion in regards to Israel's violation of the the, the, the right of the Palestinian people to self-determination in regards to its colonization and annexation and in regards to its discrimination against our people that we and many international organizations as well as Palestinian and Israeli organizations believe is tantamount to apartheid. And so we will continue pushing on that path, but of course it also requires the resilience of the people. And again, that is where hope is is necessary and where the occupation tries to break the hope of the people is when it does things like it did in the Janine camp earlier in July and in its other daily acts of repression. And so where there is resistance to those acts of oppression, that is part of the resilience, part of the steadfastness, and part of creating hope for the next day. That was Ambassador Abdelhadi Nasser. Again, Ambassador Abdelhadi Nasser is a Deputy Permanent Observer of the State of Palestine's United Nations. Ambassador, thank you for coming on Pindrop. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. So, welcome to the panel section. I'm joined here as usual. Well, first, it's a different voice greeting you. This is, of course, Diego Austin. And I'm joined now by my colleagues, AJ Camacho and Nick Castillo. And we're going to be discussing a lot of things we've heard in the interviews and from our own research and my own experience, having studied abroad in Israel for the past eight months, about changing dynamics in the West Bank. And the first question I want to start us off on is that, as we've touched on in the interviews and um, earlier in the episode before that, um, 2022 has been, and 2023 have been some of the most violent years in the West Bank, uh, seeing the highest levels of Palestinian casualties in a long time. 2023 has been the deadliest year ever for Palestinians, I believe. And my question is, why now? Why in 2022? Because when I talk to a lot of people about this and I ask them why has there been such a spike in violence, they point to issues like Israel has been shifting further to the right. More Palestinian men are disillusioned with economic process, with the political process, and this is why this is happening. But to me, these are issues that have been present for a very long time, arguably for more than a decade. Um, so that's I'm kind of wondering why is it now in 2022 that this has kind of comes to the surface. Uh, 
If you want my best guess as to why it was 2022 rather than a little bit earlier or just a bit later, um, I think a lot of it has to do with Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister. Um, Just in that he, facing his corruption trial, he seemed to get increasingly desperate to be able to find power. And as such, he was willing to form a coalition with far-right religious Zionist parties that are a lot more charged and make you know, ministers out of people who are a lot more extreme to the right, a lot more explicitly anti-Palestinian than otherwise would have happened in the history of Israel. And I think because of that desperation, we saw a further right government come to power, probably a further right one than even Netanyahu was really comfortable with, but again, that desperation. But again, people get desperate at a certain point. Everyone does. If they see that a peace process is not actually bringing peace, if their lives aren't actually improving, uh, and they really feel like there is no hope, then eventually violence is going to happen. That's the sad truth. I, I definitely agree that uh, Bibi and his the, the presence of very far-right elements in his coalition, and when I say that, I'm talking about Asma Yehudits and religious Zionism, um, I think that's played a role. I mean, a lot, a big concern of a lot of Palestinians I spoke with was rising settler violence. Yes, but um, I don't think that Bibi is the root of this because the formation of the Lions Den predates Bibi's coalition. Ibrahim al-Nabulsi was killed on August 9th, 2022. I believe Bibi's coalition was formed, what, like December of that year, correct? Um So I, I think that one of the big things, it's you have to look at when these guys were born. Ibrahim al-Nabulsi was either 18 or 19. All these guys you see, they're either, like, it's very sad. Some of them are, like, 16. Like, they're not adults yet, and they're already taking up arms. Uh, They're all, like, you know, like, late teens, early 20s, maybe early 30s. These are all people who grew up in the aftermath of the Second Intifada. Um, And Operation Defensive Shield, which occurred in 2002, was extremely traumatic for uh, Nablus and Jenny. Like, when you talk to people there, you can see that it still has like scars in even people who weren't alive during that time because it was extremely violent. Um, I mean, the, the casualty rate was extremely high. And if, if you like look on how these events are like what they call them, it's literally called like the Battle of Nablus, the Battle of Jenin. This wasn't just like an in and out raid. It was like a, it basically turned these place into a war zone. And these are people who grew up in the aftermath of that. Um, and it's, I mean, something very depressing about this conflict to me is, I mean, I studied in Northern Ireland with you guys before, and it's like, oh, look what happens when you give peace a chance. But then when you go here and you talk to both is- Palestinians and Israelis feel this way too. They say, well, we gave peace a chance and look at what happens. And when you when you take kids who grew up in the aftermath of such a traumatic event, um, and now they're coming to fighting age, I... I think this is part of the reason it's happening now because the people who experience the fate of the peace process and then the what is, in my opinion, the incompetence of the Palestinian Authority and I think to a big extent the unwillingness of Israel um, to make significant concessions after the Second Intifada, um, I think it's easy to see why a movement like this would or why something like this would happen. So... I, I like the way Diego's describing it in terms of a generational shift as well. I think that's really important. Um, in like Israeli military doctrine, they have this term, and it's usually applied to Gaza, um, this idea of mowing the grass, right? Um, with this idea that we're not going to resolve any of these issues. What we're going to do is when it is necessary, we are going to go in and mow the grass, which is to say, disrupt as much 
infrastructure of these armed groups as possible and simply wait for it to once again become another problem. But I think something similar could possibly be said of the situation in the West Bank. The last time we had really mass uh, scale violence in the West Bank was the Second Intifada, which ended in, in 2005. If you think about that in terms of years, that's, you know, 17, 18 years ago at this point you have the opportunity for a new generation to grow up um, in the aftermath of that. That The concept being that maybe Israel does enough damage to the infrastructure of armed groups during the Second Intifada um, that for the, the years following, it's very hard for them to re- regroup, to reorganize, and, and to really launch um, a, a new wave of attacks or anything like that. I mean, the, the, the sad reality of that is it, it seems to indicate that uh, the natural reaction on the part of the IDF and you can sort of start to see this in places like Janine and Nablus, is another sort of mowing of the grass. Diego, what is the spirit like for Palestinians? Like, do they seem, do they seem like they feel hopeless? Do they seem like they have optimism that they can have a Palestinian state at some point? What, what seems to be the general attitude there towards the long-term prospects? So most of the Palestinians I spoke with, I suppose, came from a particular demographic. It was mostly young men like maybe 18 to like 27 or something because honestly these were the guys who would offer me smokes and I'd smoke with them and we'd, we'd have like pretty long conversations um and um yeah that was exactly what I sensed it was a sense of hopelessness and I met a lot of people who had I mean part of it is just very poor economic situation and there's um, a lot of people who have college degrees and just don't feel like they have any prospects to get a job um, they feel that the Palestinian Authority is extremely corrupt and they kind of feel like they, like a common thing I heard people say is that they live in a state with no di- like dignity because um, they the way they, they're describing the situation to me and they're like, well, Israel comes in here and they conduct these raids. Um, and you, you have to understand that um, for a lot of these people, that, like the militants that are, are killed, um, it's not just like some faceless person on the news. It's like a member of the community that a lot of times they knew and he'll be like, Oh yeah. Like I knew that guy. Like he was like, he was like in my class, like in school or something back in the day. A lot of times civilians get killed as a result of the raids. Um, and there's settler violence and the Palestinian authority. They're like, well, what authority is this? They, they can't defend against these attacks. And then from the view of these people, um, they, they, they kind of, you know, they, they have a better view of other militant groups that will rise up against that, especially the lines then now, and then the Palestinian authority often goes to arrest those people. So, I mean, while I obviously don't like support the militant groups or anything like that, I think if you just put yourself in their shoes, it's very easy to see why a group like the lines then would become so popular and while the, why the Palestinian authority would become so unpopular. Then, I mean, they, they look to developments in Israel and see things getting further to the right. And like members of the prime minister's cabinet calling for the demolition of a Palestinian village when Smaltrick called for the demolition of Huara. Um, I mean, it's easy to see why they wouldn't think that the peace process is going to work and why they feel like taking up arms is the only alternative, you know? And I mean, I, it's, well, I, that's not my arguments. I mean, it's it's easy to see when you talk to these people why they would feel that way. But I, I will say that it's also not easy for Israel either, because I don't I, 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 I'd like to think that I have a more nuanced take on this. I think uh, when people talk about this issue, they like to put themselves into a camp that they pick aside. Uh, I like say I'm pro-Israel, I'm pro-Palestine. Um, 
I mean, it might sound a bit corny at first. I just see myself more as pro-peace because I, I do think that then the Israeli side is also worth listening to, too. Because Yehud Barak did make a lot of concessions in Camp David 2000, including letting go of, I think it was 92% of the West Bank and then conducting uh, territorial exchanges around Gaza to make up for a lot of the other 8%. And then Arafat did not accept the deal and he did not offer an alternative. And then this was followed by the second intifada. So you, you can see both sides feel like the other side isn't serious about peace. And I mean, I, I can see why both feel that way. Because from the Palestinian perspective, uh, settlement expansion continued. Um, and then the separation wall was built later on. But then from the Israeli perspective, um, Oslo was followed by the second intifada where, I mean, a lot of Israelis died. It was like really Why? brutal. I, I don't think it's just Palestinians who are hopeless about peace. I think it's a lot of Israelis who are also hopeless about peace. I put a little bit more blame on Israel, again, just because of that state capacity. And I know that you mentioned, which is accurate, that Ehud Barak offered a lot more concessions at Camp David than any, practically any other uh, Israeli prime minister around his time would have been willing to do. but. Even then, the, his foreign minister at the time of Camp David, uh, Shlomo Ben-Ami, he later said that if he were a Palestinian, he would not have accepted Camp David. So I think, to me, that still demonstrates that as much as it is both sides, I think Israel has more capacity to improve its stance towards peace. The, the issue of settlements is, is something you can sort of squarely lay uh, at, the, at the feet of the Israeli state. I mean, one of the big reasons we're seeing such high casualty rates at this point is because settlements have, have grown to... 500,000, 600,000, something in that range, very deep into the, the West Bank. And, and this is sort of an environment that gets referred to sort of as like a target-rich environment. Um, so again, this is, this is part of the issue that uh, the Palestinians feel that they have no future as a people, um, given um, this, these encroachments, and that it is the, the settlement issue has so significantly shifted the geography of the West Bank that discussions around Oslo and you know, the negotiations in 2000 and, and the two-state framework are really starting to fall out of fashion. I guess shifting more on Al-Nabulsi, because this is a person I, I really do want to talk about on our panel. Um, his story is one that I think is very fascinating. We, we talked about this in our second uh, interview about why was this guy able to make such a significant impact. And for one, I mean, he himself did help start the Lion's Den. It was named the Lion's Den after him, after his death. He was known as the Lion of Nablus, but he was involved in a similar organization. I think they called themselves the Nablus Brigade that had this similar formula of uniting Palestinians of different um, views under one umbrella to fight for like a common cause. And the quote that struck me the most about this guy was his mother who said, they cannot kill Ibrahim because everyone is Ibrahim. And I would really think about that when I would go throughout the West Bank because I talk to people and I'm like, and I've, I've read his story um, and he has a very similar story to a lot of these young men who just, like I mentioned earlier, don't see, like, don't think they have any opportunity and are just completely disillusioned and they take up arms. And it's easy to see why the combination of him helping found this movement and then I think encapsulating what a lot of Palestinian youth feel caused them to become such a symbol. Um, I guess something I'm wondering that I kind of want to ask you guys is to what extent do you think this could harness popular energy to become a big political force? 
because I mean the, the Lions Den has already shown how influential they are in the street. In I think twenty twenty two, Shuafat refugee camp was being blockaded, um, and the Lions Den declared a day of rage, and Palestinians throughout the West Bank, not just Nablus, throughout the West Bank, uh, protested, um, and like thousands. And now you're seeing in Jenin, the Jenin brigades formed. They have a similar formula in Tulkaram, the Tulkaram brigades formed. I'm, I'm wondering, do do you guys think this could become? either the lines and it could expand or that it could become the kind of thing where different localized branches similar to it are made. So I agree with you, Diego, that I think there's a, a strong appetite in the West Bank and even within Israel proper, within communities of Palestinians of, of Israeli citizenship for some kind of mobilization. Um, I think there's a strong appetite there. I mean, during, during the May war um, in 2021, it wasn't just that Gaza was shooting rockets into Israel, it's that there were big uh, protests that turned into riots within Israel proper. There were big protests and demonstrations and, and work strikes throughout Israel and, and the West Bank as well. So I think the appetite is definitely there for some kind of mass mobilization. I don't think that the lion's den could really head it or control it. Um, I think that everything I've read on both the lion's den and these other brigades that are forming is that they're really informal structures. They're really loose. There's no leadership structure. There's no formal political um, organization through which Palestinians broadly could articulate a single message or a single platform. So while I do think there's going to be more Palestinian mobilization, political mobilization in the next few years, I don't think it's going to be very well controlled. I think it's going to face a lot of repression from both the PA and from Israeli security forces, um, which is very dark, I think. I think it could be a very, very dark period, um, an incredibly violent one, because you would have large-scale mobilization with a strong, violent, or terrorist component to it coming from the Palestinian side. And in the past, when you look at the first and second intifada, the way Israel reacts to that is is really intense military um, uh, military crackdowns. And uh, something big I did want to discuss is, do you guys think there is a way that Abbas's death could not lead to like a very dark period? Because I think that his death is going to lead to a horrific power struggle that's going to be very bloody. And it's hard. I don't think that's certain. But I, it's hard for me to see how it isn't a likely option, um, because for one, there's different splinters of Fatah that have formed, um, and now I, I, I have a hard time believing that outside of the PLO, I'm having a hard time believing that Hamas and Islamic Jihad, who are being increasingly supported by Iran, um, have a very hard time believing that they're you know, just sit idly by and not try to take the reins like Hamas did in Gaza in 2007 when there was, a, I guess, kind of similar crisis in, in leadership. Um, do, do you guys think there's a way that Abbas's death can be followed by like a peaceful transition to power? I was really surprised so, that your first, that um, Avi Malamed, if I'm saying that correctly, seemed to believe that there yeah. could be like a peaceful transition post um Mahmoud Abbas. Like I, that, that was something that really surprised me because the way I see it, the PA has already lost the PA has already lost control of like uh you know major areas of the West Bank, like uh, uh refugee camps in Janin and, and areas of Nablus as well. Um it's a deeply unpopular institution. Um it has very, very little legitimacy in the eyes of most Palestinians, and it's I think it's virtually impossible for them to integrate the more radical sections of Palestinian society into what could be called maybe like non-radical politics in the West Bank. Like you can't integrate Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the lion's den into the PA because, 
you know, my, my own personal read is that the entire basis of legitimacy for these organizations is that they're inherently militant. Is I they're- think the best hope, frankly, is for Abbas not to die, being the way that he leaves power. I, I think the best hope for the Palestinian Authority to maintain legitimacy is to finally have elections. And I think if this is done, I think that that will at least help it to remain relevant in the long term beyond being an internationally recognized body. I think the problem with elections is that it's pretty likely that Hamas would win, like a lot of polling suggests this, which means two possible things would happen. Either the Fatah would stop Hamas from running, which would nullify the results of the elections in the eyes of a lot of Palestinians. Or secondly, I don't think Israel would tolerate Hamas taking over the West Bank, obviously. So the, I, again, like you're, you're stuck in this yeah. five-part trap where, where things don't, um, where, where it's, it's very hard to even move one inch forward without moving a foot backwards. And I suppose to wrap it up, um, I mean, where do we go from here? Because like, it doesn't look good. good. And it's hard for me to see a way forward. I thought I would leave there with more answers, but I left there more confused and depressed. So do you guys think there's a way forward from this right now? But my personal stance is there really is a way out with the international community. Uh, like I said earlier, I really think that particularly if we can push Israel towards making more concessions than they are right now, there is hope for a long-term solution. Um, and I really think that the United States in particular, but frankly, any uh, non-Arab country that Israel has significant ties with, I think there is the potential to apply the right type of diplomatic pressure, uh, impl- apply the right incentives as well and actually get the concession for either a two-state solution or a one-state solution or something that both Israelis and the Palestinian Authority can agree to. And I think Arab countries could have a role to play in the same way by applying pressure to uh, the Palestinian Authority and Palestinians, although I think that pressure would be a lot lighter. Um, So I've already said what I think is going to happen more or less in the next few years, which is sort of... um, an Arab Spring style revolt within the West Bank that um, spirals out of control. Um, I mean, I, I think the West Bank resembles more and more one of the Arab Spring countries with the applied pressure of occupation, which is which is so intense and, and so violent and disruptive to daily life. Um, so that's and, and I think that will escalate into really horrific violence, most likely, until it reaches a point where the international community steps in or or something really dramatic changes in terms of the structure of the conflict. I, uh, I don't think at the present moment there is a solution to the conflict. Um, I think you would have to see drastic changes, and I don't see those, those happening anytime soon um, without some, some kind of mass violence. I, just, I, I, I think it's, it's going to be very, very dark. Um, I'll add into this uh, multipolarity, just because I think it's, it's important in almost every conversation we have about international affairs. Um, we're, we're switching. Um, in the 1990s, the U.S. could apply really intense pressure to Israel and get it to come to the peace table. And the U.S. could apply pressure to the PLO and get it to come to the negotiating table. I don't know if the U.S. Carries that, is going to carry that same kind of weight five years from now in Israel. The U.S. has not been able to get Israel to assist it in um, sanctioning Russia or assisting Ukraine. Um, you know, BRICS upgraded to 11 members today. A lot of those countries have really, really bad human rights records. And I think a lot of them would be willing to look away um on the issue of Palestinian rights. Um, right. And um, I mean, we could talk about this um, for hours, but I think we're going to have to conclude uh, for the sake of time. I, uh, again, this, these are my colleagues, AJ Camacho and Nick Castillo. 
thank you guys for coming on and um thank you for listening now it's time to spin the globe and our pin has dropped on niger so make sure to check your podcast app next week to hear the latest news insights and analysis surrounding niger if you want to make sure new episodes of pin drop are downloaded to your device automatically make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app our guests today were avi malamed and feda abdelhadi nasser the chief producer of today's episode is diego austin I am AJ Camacho, co-producer at Pindrop alongside Nicholas Castillo. Pindrop World News was created by Ian Kearns. Mm-hmm.